he is going to come in at the last second with a bid that makes the six billion look like peanuts. And he has obviously tens of billions that he can access to make a better bid. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, April 4th. Today, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about one of the biggest questions swirling around the NFL offseason. Will Jeff Bezos try to buy the Washington Commanders? As Teddy explains, this is way more than sports gossip. A sale would involve some very big egos and big dollar signs in the inscrutable and competitive world of American billionaires. And later, Bill Cohan joins Ben Landy to talk about the financial catastrophe of Twitter Blue. How much money is the company losing really? And what happens next if Elon Musk can't turn it around? We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Uh, now that March Madness is behind us, baseball's around, I guess. But the thing most people in sports talk about all year long when there's not, you know, something getting some ratings is the NFL and the NFL offseason in particular. To uh, all of you guys listening who hate sports, guess what? This is not about sports, but this is about the Washington Commanders. And I'm joined today by Teddy Schleifer, who is obviously on the rich guy beat and the rich gal beat and the richest person. Well, sometimes it's Elon Musk, but often it's Jeff Bezos. And the speculation in the greater Washington area, where Teddy now lives after having decamped there from the Bay Area, the DMV, is that Bezos was going to put in an offer for the Washington Commanders. Theoretically, even though this team was purchased by Dan Snyder, the embattled current owner who's selling the team, he bought it for $800 million, I believe, way back in the day, spent two decades pissing off Redskins, football team, Commanders fans, and everyone in Washington wants Bezos to buy it, I think, because he would bring untold millions and billions to the team. Teddy, though, welcome to the podcast. He has not submitted a bid. Is is he Correct. out? So we could have had a very similar conversation from the moment that Dan Snyder announced last year that he was pursuing strategic transactions with a bank. Bezos has always been this rumored uh, white knight for the team. But what's new, Peter, is that time is running out. So there are two other confirmed bidders who have quasi-publicly said that they've put together fully financed $6 billion bids for the commanders, one of whom is Josh Harris, who uh, is a private equity honcho. The other is this Canadian guy who I admittedly never heard of before named Steve Apostolopoulos. I'm sure I'm butchering the last name. But what matters is that neither of those people are Jeff Bezos. And the question about whether or not he would enter, like, it's almost as if you're, you're a kid and you like always assume that you know, you're going to get that present next week. At, at this point, there's like nothing else that Bezos can be waiting for. You know, these other owners have submitted fully financed bids. They've toured the facilities. They've signed NDAs. You know, Bezos has hired a banker, which kind of means something, kind of doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's told friends, I can report, you know, that he's interested. So why hasn't he done anything? And like, there, there's two possibilities, both of which on the surface might look exactly the same. One possibility is that his interest is is purely theoretical and he does not actually want to buy the team. Maybe he wants to wait for the Seahawks in a few years. Maybe he hmm. is, you know, decided to, to take a pass when he saw what the figures look like, though. I don't really buy that. The other possibility 
far more tantalizing is that he is going to come in at the last second with a bid that makes the six billion look like peanuts. And he has obviously tens of billions, you know, I forget what his current net worth is right now. It's, you know, it's been over a hundred at times that he can access to make a better bid and makes, you know, jump from six to seven or even six to 6.5. You know, the, the other bids from Bezos' competitors are part of consortiums. Like, it, you know, it's not as if Josh Harris or, you know, our friend up in Canada have $6 billion just laying around, but Be- Bezos could. So the possibility that he might come in with a last minute bid, which might on the surface just look like him doing nothing remains. And I think we're going to get a lot of clarity recording this uh, the, the first week of April. You know, the NFL draft is coming up. That's sort of been a date that lots of people think um, we'll have some clarity by then. The, the question is, is Jeff Bezos for real? And we're going to know that in, I think, days, maybe weeks, but maybe days. There were other boldface names in a rumored ownership bid, including Matthew McConaughey yeah. and Jay-Z, who would partner up with Bezos and some other folks to pony up the money. Are they still involved in this or was that just kind of speculation from the get-go? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, the way that these things work, it's almost like they're political campaigns where like, you know, it's not like Jeff Bezos needs McConaughey's or Jay-Z's money, but you sort of like try to have as many Boldface names, uh, as you put it, to to be a part of it. Like you know, the NFL really wants more diverse ownership. You know, you get a guy who's not white in there. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey is not necessarily helping with the the image or, or diversity. There are no yeah, there are no black owners in the NFL. I believe the owner of the Jaguars is of Pakistani descent, and the owner of the Bills right. is of Asian descent. But majority black league. All the owners are basically a bunch of rich white guys. Right. So um, you know, and the Josh Harris group. Uh, made sure to include like a DC uh, local wealthy guy. Um, there's these are campaigns, and then like Peter, that, that gets to your question though, whether or not people actually want Jeff Bezos in, in their club. You know, there are there are a lot of legitimate reasons why folks might not. The the leading one, which I've I've heard reiterated to me as I've been reporting the story this week. You know, he obviously is the largest shareholder in a company that broadcast Thursday night football mm-hmm. and you know media deals are essentially the future or frankly are the present uh, of kind of sports equity values or franchise equity values so can Jeff just like recuse himself from kind of future media deal conversations like that's a pretty big recusal for uh, an owner to make but it also is a pretty big massive conflict of interest uh, theoretically to have Bezos voting or, or kind of even, you know, being on both sides of the deal when they, not just Amazon, but also Amazon's competitors as, as they compete for deals as well. Right. So that's one possibility. The other thing is like these are there's a little bit of like high school click creation here where like, you know, Bezos obviously has a frosty relationship with Dan Snyder, but he also, you know, is he on good terms with 31 other NFL owners? And, um, you know, Josh Harris has wanted a team for a long time and has really cultivated relationships in the sports world. And it's not a coincidence that frequently people who lose out on earlier bids, it's almost like, you know, uh, losing uh, a Republican primary and then getting it four years later, it's very common for people who lose previous bids to be in a good position to win the next bid. And this is Jeff's first real time, you know, even mm-hmm. pretending to try. So it's unclear if he kind of has the capital with the owner's club as it's currently constructed. Yeah. And uh, John Kelly and I talked about this on some recent podcast on this topic. And I think it's that, yeah, you've got to like do the politics of, you know, being a member of the NFL owners cartel, but most of these owners are multimillionaires and or small B billionaires. <laughs> and Jeff Bezos is the biggest B billionaire you can possibly imagine. And so 
all of these guys who are on a certain level, all of a sudden the biggest man on campus shows up and does he outshine everybody? Does he invest more money in that team? You know, Amazon obviously has NFL broadcasting rights. It seems like he's like the kind of guy that the owners would actually want to not have around, even though he has cool yachts and probably throws some fun parties. Yeah, look, I mean, is the brand of being an NFL owner shinier or, or, or rustier with Bezos in there? You can you make arguments both ways. And, you know, these are 32, 31 different people who have different opinions on that question, I'm sure. But, like, he, at the end of the day, he is marking up the value of their startup almost, mm-hmm. right? You know, he's saying that, you know, if he puts down $8 billion and he decides that, you know, this in this very illiquid market that is uh, NFL franchise, he decides it's worth $8 billion, then, you know, if Jody Allen sells the Seahawks in, you know, five years, she can, you know, her bankers can say, well, it's, you know, at least worth what the commanders are worth. So to some extent, you know, an argument for including Bezos is that, you know, he's he's the dumbest schmuck to make the highest bid. And that means that some other dumb schmuck has to make a higher bid in five years. So from a, from a business standpoint, I think uh, NFL owners want just big numbers. Yeah, uh, that that's another topic around the sale is, again, the Washington franchise, then the Redskins was purchased for eight hundred million dollars. Oh, wait, some point in the late nineties, I would have been in seven fifty in nineteen ninety nine, right when I graduated yeah. high school. And you know, Jack Kent Cook was probably also a schmuck, but a, a beloved <laughs> owner in certain ways. Um, and the question of how much is the franchise actually valued has been answered with however much they pay for it. <laughs> you know, because this hasn't you know, happened. This transaction hasn't happened in Washington for um, 20 years or so. Why was there a deadline for these bids? And on the topic of Bezos coming in last minute, is it like formally too late? Is that a Snyder imposed deadline? Is that an NFL owner's deadline? What is that deadline? So it is totally manufactured to the point where, you know, Snyder, it, it's possible at the end of this decides not to sell it at all. You know, the, the context here was the pressure on Snyder from the NFL as he was scandalized by, you know, reports in Bezos' Washington Post about mm. um, kind of a, a culture of chaos uh, within the team, within the team. Like, I think it's fair to say that, like, the pressure has been diminished, you know, just as true as with any kind of scandal where, like, months pass and you sort of, like, you, you know, you assume that the guy has already sold the team. Yeah. So, and all Snyder said at the time was that he was, like, cons- hiring bankers here at B of A to consider transactions. It's possible that he, you know, says, hey, franchise values are going up. Why am I selling at six? Why not wait, you know, 10 years and sell it at 16? Right. So the, the the deadline might be non-existent entirely, you know, but then the deadline's also been pushed back a lot. You know, like the, the season obviously was happening in the fall. We just had an NFL owners meeting the other week. There's been reporting that, you know, well, we'll wait to the owners meeting. And now it's now I'm saying, you know, very confidently wait till the draft. Like I'm sure next it's, you know, wait till training camp or wait, you know, the commanders might be on hard knocks next season. Like, like, like wait till that. But it could also be years from now. And, and frankly, this is like, this is a unusual transaction in that it's, you know, Obviously, not a public company. Snyder, if you want, there's no fiduciaries. Like Snyder, if he wants to, could sell it to you know, sell it to Puck for for one dollar. I mean, these are all mm-hmm. uh, transactions that are up to the uh, controlling shareholder, and that's Dan Snyder. And the the flip side of that is he could, it, you know, there's been a lot of reporting, very much all of it contradictory and confusing about whether or not Snyder likes Jeff Bezos or dislikes mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos so much they wouldn't sell him the franchise. That sounds crazy and, you know, would certainly be fodder for li- for litigation in like a normal business deal that, you know, you're not going to sell 
fulfill your fiduciary duty just because you don't like coverage in the Washington Post. But like Dan Snyder can do whatever the hell he wants. If he if he decides that like Jeff Bezos was yeah. mean to him and you know stepped on uh you know stepped on his head with uh, a couple of mean stories, that's Dan Snyder's <laughs> constitutional right. So this is a very unusual transaction, and um, frankly, what makes it so fascinating is that it's so tailored to the egos of these people. Um, and that's frankly why I think it's a great puck story, uh, specifically. A thousand percent. Totally agree. All right, Teddy, thanks so much for the insight uh, as a, a long-suffering uh, WFT Commanders fan. This is good gossip. Thanks, buddy. You bet. When we come back, Bill Cohan is here to talk about the financial catastrophe going on at Twitter. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy, and I am delighted to be joined on this Tuesday morning by Bill Cohan. Hey, Bill. Hey, Ben. Indictment Tuesday. <laughs> Arraignment right. Tuesday. That's right. But we're going to talk about something else. I um, Yes. I want to talk to you about Twitter, which, which we have not talked about in a minute. But there is a lot going on, obviously, on, on the financial side. Elon Musk took on a lot of debt to buy this company. He did successfully cut costs by firing really the vast majority of people who worked there. And it's still working. It's still mostly functional. So hats off to him, I suppose. On the revenue side of the equation, there's just been a massive, massive advertiser exodus. I, w- I was just looking this up. The The latest data we have is that monthly revenue from Twitter's top 1,000 advertisers dropped by more than 60% from October through the end of the year. It seems like Elon has been hoping to make that money back with this subscription tier product that he introduced, Twitter Blue. I don't know how he makes the economics work here. It seems like very few people are signing up for it. Very few people are interested in it. Can you walk me through sort of what Elon is thinking? How much money does he need to generate, uh, given the debt he took on to buy this company? And and how far off the mark do we think he might be right now? Well, I think there are uh, a number of conditions, precedent, Ben, uh, that we need to make sure people remember. One is that uh, Twitter was never a very good company. A never a very good product, never a very good profitable enterprise. At best, uh, it was making you know, like a billion dollars of EBITDA. At best, I think that was probably hopeful number, uh, aspirational, uh, as they say. Uh, and then you know, Elon comes along and you know buys the company for forty-four billion dollars, forty-four times that EBITDA, uh, and then leverages it. Uh, all of which was ridiculous. Well, he bought near the top of the market and, and then tried to wriggle out of it. But we, we don't need to That's old history. Right. That's old history. But it, but it does rank as one of the stupider deals of all time and one of the most ridiculous leveraged buyouts of all time. And to boot, of course, he's destroyed, you know, I would argue, all of the $31 billion of equity he, he and his buddies put into the deal. He's written that equity down to $20 billion from 44 I'd say that's being remarkably kind to his fellow equity holders. I think the value is zero because, you know, that doesn't mean there isn't some option value if he can, you know, pull this off, uh, turnaround that he's trying to do. But, you know, given that the debt, which is $13 billion of debt, which is being held by various 
investment banks on Wall Street as opposed to selling it off, which is what they would usually do. And the reason they haven't sold it off, uh, Ben, is because they'd have to recognize like a 50% loss on holding of that debt, which would be $6.5 billion, which is a pretty significant hit. Uh, it may even be more than 50% at this point between the increase in interest rates and the poor performance of the company and the fact that, you know, he's already written the equity down by more than half, which, again, is completely fictitious, if you ask me. It's it's much more than that. This is an unmitigated financial disaster. Okay, so that's number one. You know, number two, has he proven that he can continue to operate this thing with uh, 75% fewer employees? I mean, I guess so. But again, I, I thought it was kind of a marginal product to begin with. And... You know, now I I barely recognize the thing. I can't even figure it out. I mean, things show up in my For You stream that I have no interest in or don't want. I mean, he's carved it up. So now there's this following stream, which, you know, now I can't even figure out who's in there anymore. Uh, the whole blue check fiasco, the advertising of fiasco, the not paying creditors and vendors. Honestly, I don't know what this guy is up to with Twitter. And uh, you know what? It, it may not even matter because he's rich as ever again. So because of Tesla's stock rebound, which has basically doubled this year, it probably it doesn't matter to him. It's just trifling. Uh, but you would think it would matter to his other uh, equity investors and the, the remaining employees. Well, we can we can get to the Tesla stock because I think that is very interesting. But um, you mentioned Twitter Blue. This is um, the new subscription tier that he's introduced. What a disaster! Uh, just I mean, the last week or two, I, I think this product was always sort of a little bit uncool. But you know, he approached the introduction of it with so much scorn and hostility towards the biggest brands that he needs to pay for this: media organizations, giant celebrities. These are the people that effectively create the content that brings people to the Twitter site. And he's described it to them as basically a, a tax on the elites. Again, just just so much scorn for his users. And at the same time, you know, he's changed this new product such that paying for a Twitter checkmark doesn't actually involve verifying that you are who you say you are. It's it's just a badge that, that gives you a couple um, new features. It shows that you've paid this $8 a month. But now you have big celebrities. You've got just about every mainstream media organization. You even have the White House saying they're not going to bother paying because if it doesn't actually verify who they are, it, it has no use to them. In fact, the product has become a lot less worthwhile, a lot less valuable now that impersonation can run rampant. Bill, I, I really just don't see how he's able to sort of turn this around. Well, I'm not even sure, you know, even when we weren't paying, you know, even when I wasn't paying for my blue check, I'm not sure what utility I got out of it. I'm not sure whether anybody cared whether somebody was, I was the real thing or I was being impersonated or not. I, you know, the things go by so quickly, it's hard to even know whether it matters, whether what uh, you're saying is really what you're saying or whether it's somebody else impersonating you. Uh, the, the whole platform, the whole idea behind it. I mean, it used to be that there was a fair amount of useful information, especially for journalists on it. But when you take away the New York Times' blue check and some sort of random effort that when no one else's seems to have been taken away for when he said he was going to do it on April 1st, again, maybe it's all just one big April Fool's joke. You know, that seems like, you know, some sort of petty retaliation to me. Honestly, I, I'd have more free time, Ben, if it just kind of all went went away, because I 
do find myself mindlessly scrolling through that crap too often during the day. Sure, of course. Um, but, you know, to be fair, the reason that we are talking about this, besides the fact that Elon Musk, obviously the, the second richest man in the world, he's a very interesting character. What's happening with Twitter is a, is a fascinating business story. But, it, you know, it does have importance, even though it is a smaller platform than some other social media companies. For a number of years, it has been the sort of public uh, intellectual town square where a lot of people came together and were able to engage with each other. But Bill, I mean, just before we started talking here, I pulled some numbers on Twitter Blue. And and just to be very charitable, at the high end, this product has between 200,000 and 300,000 subscribers. Again, that, that, that might be overestimating. But if that's true, at $8 a month, that's generating something like $28 million a year. Twitter's advertising revenue in 2021 was $4.5 billion. I mean, this is like fishing pennies out of Trevi Fountain. It's, it's nothing. It's nothing. And then like maybe he could have combined both these things to have a, a subscription product that's sort of a premium tier in addition to robust advertising. And now he's got neither. He's got neither of those things. I, I think it's very hard, uh, Ben, when people are used to getting something for free or, or in exchange for, you know, sharing their data. So, I mean, you know, there's an implied contract there. You know, we'll give our content slash our data to Twitter for free. Uh, it creates a network effect where people come and, and look at it and then they can sell advertising against it when it's working properly, quote unquote, and it never was really working very properly. But now when you, you know, like destroy that and, you know, the, the advertisers flee and then you try to replace it with a subscriber business. And I don't think people just don't see the value in it. They just don't see the utility in it. So why should they pay for it. I mean, I guess if I, I mean, now, you know, the irony, of course, is Elon Musk and his al algorithms have made him the the number one uh, most followed person on Twitter, edging out our friend Barack Obama. I mean, you know, I suppose if I were Justin Bieber with a hundred, um, you know, 120 million uh, people, you know, following me, I mean, that's incredible army. I might pay, you know, some amount to keep that army intact. But, uh, you know, for like 99.9999999% of the users, uh, it's just not worth it to them to pay anything to keep their minor league armies intact. You know, you know, the other thing that I find just absolutely laughable here, Ben, is Elon talking about how this thing could actually be worth $250 billion or, you know, or 10 times or, you know, the value or 12 times the value that it is now. And I think, you know, he thinks it, that might happen because he's going to create a payments company, a financial services payments company. Honestly, I mean, given that banking in general is is a confidence game, and if you don't, we just saw with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, Credit Suisse, et cetera, that how quickly confidence can be lost. If people actually can somehow get confident in Twitter as a financial services platform, good luck to them. But that is a, a huge pipe dream, never going to happen, and certainly isn't going to result in Twitter being worth $250 million, billion. I want to end by getting your prediction for what might happen next year. Obviously, Elon now has to make regular interest payments on the, the debt he took on to buy this company. Like you mentioned, that debt is probably valued at 50 cents on the dollar at this point. I find it hard to imagine that Elon would allow private equity or whomever to swoop in and buy up that debt. I think that, you know, at the risk of psychoanalyzing the guy, he has a lot of his ego invested in this company as well. 
So I'm curious how you would game out his next steps. I mean, does, does he sell more Tesla stocks that he can continue making those payments? Does he watch as this company continues to become devalued to the point where he can now come in and buy up that debt himself at even less money? You know, if, if I were him or, or if I were advising him and he would listen to me, lots of ifs there, and I've written this you know, pretty much from the start, is I would advise him to absolutely buy that debt back at a big discount from those banks. The last thing he wants is somebody like Apollo to get its mitts into this debt because then they can cause real trouble. I mean, what's, you know, at this point, given that, you know, his net worth went up by, you know, something like 50 billion already this year. What's, um, you know, why not spend 6 billion of his 198 billion, you know, it's barely material to him to buy back uh, this debt uh, at a discount, six and a half billion, whatever it is, even 7 billion, just to get rid of it and take it out of the banking system. The banks would love it, uh, although they surely wouldn't like the discount they'd have to take, but they it would free up uh, room on their balance sheets to, you know, reprime the pump. They've got other deals that are sitting there that are uh, frozen as well. So they need to begin moving some of this uh, high yield leveraged uh, bank loans off their balance sheet. And, you know, Elon is clearly an obvious buyer and the best buyer, I mean, for himself. Uh, again, he, if it gets into the hands of a distressed player and then the company continues to deteriorate i mean i guess elon can continue to make interest payments which are probably like whatever a billion three a year or so that might be his preferred way to do it but if he buys the debt and retires it then he doesn't have to make any more interest payments you know that would be my advice to you elon of course my first advice to you would have been to never have ever 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 gotten anywhere near this buying this company in the first place well, it's given us something to talk about. I feel like we took a break from this subject for a little bit, and now it's just becoming evident how much uh, all of your predictions, Bill, about this company are sort of coming true in, in real time. So we'll have you back on to talk about it. But uh, thanks, as always, for joining us. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.